I'm Sean Duffy. I'm Janice Dean. I'm Tom Shalou, And this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, October 19th, 2023. I'm Dave Anthony. President Biden went to the war front in Israel and said terror will not win, freedom will. Let's be realistic. I don't think they're going to fully destroy Hamas. Hamas is not just a bunch of terrorists, but it's also an idea, just like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. A lapsed weapons embargo on Iran is met with new sanctions by the U.S., but... Will it be enough as Iranian officials warn they will take action against Israel? We, without any effort, the United States allowed this to lapse at the UN, and it's now not under UN sanctions for Iran to send these suicide drones to Russia, to Hamas, to Hezbollah, to whomever they want. And I'm Jason Rant. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. He wasn't there for long. But President Biden went to Israel. I'm here to tell you, the terrorists will not win. Pledging more American support, fighting the war Hamas started with a terror attack 12 days ago. Unleashing pure, unadulterated evil upon the world. There's no rationalizing it. No excusing it. Period. And he told the Israelis... Let me assure you, for me, as the American president, there's no higher priority than the release and safe return of all these hostages. As for the hospital bombing in Gaza Tuesday that killed Palestinian civilians sheltering there. Based on the information we've seen to date, it appears the result of an errant rocket fired by a terrorist group in Gaza. Hamas insists it was an Israeli airstrike, sparking protests. From Ramallah in the West Bank there, to Jordan, to Lebanon. That's in Beirut, where there were clashes with security and fires set near the U.S. Embassy, leading to warnings for Americans there to leave and others to not go. I think the hospital bombing is just a harbinger of things to come. Dan Hoffman is a retired CIA senior clandestine services officer, now a Fox News contributor. This is probably a microcosm of what we can expect when Israel enters Gaza and begins to mount what will be a bloody ground offensive. We know about the fog of war, but it almost doesn't even matter what the facts will be because there's a lot of predisposed bias out there. And that's what's going to cause the region to become more inflamed. Yeah. It was only a month ago that National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan was talking about how things were proceeding in the right direction towards peace. And, of course, uh, that's certainly not where we're headed these days. So what happened with the Hamas terror attack nearly two weeks ago? Why did that seemingly surprise everybody? I mean, you'd think that there'd be some intelligence somewhere. Don't they usually pick up chatter? I mean, supposedly Iran was behind this for a long time they were planning this. And, and so in order to carry something like this out, it had to be plotted for a while, correct? It did. And there were a lot of moving parts. There were there was a land air and sea, all well-coordinated. But Hamas, these Hamas terrorists exercise really good OPSEC, operational security. And I'm quite sure that they've been trained well by Hezbollah and by Iran to do that. And so on this case, they beat Israeli intelligence. Uh, Does that surprise you? I mean, you've you worked in the CIA for a long time. American intelligence, you'd have to think, works with Israel. How did everybody miss it? Look, intelligence failures happen. Now, there's a lot of successes out there that people never hear about because, as one of my old mentors used to say, the secret of our success is 
the secret of our success. <laughs> we don't talk about it. But when there's a failure, as there was, for example, on 9-11, or in this case with Israel, it's usually in three places. It's the collection phase where you've got trying to you know, run human sources. Maybe you didn't get all the intelligence you needed. Sometimes it's the analytical phase where the right questions aren't being asked and the right requirements aren't being put forth. Israel should have expected that their effort to negotiate uh, reconciliation and diplomatic relations with Saudi Arabia might prompt Hamas to take this very move. And then there's the executive decision-making part. Did Israel do all that they could do to harden their defenses? Well, Hamas was able to destroy Israel's communications and surveillance towers with drone attacks. So, you know, there was a lot of weakness there and a lot of vulnerability that Hamas exposed. Israel has to learn on the fly. And when they conduct their ground offensive, which is reliant on human intelligence, they're going to have to really figure out what went wrong now so that they don't repeat that during the ground offensive. Hamas knows they're coming. They've had tunnels, they have booby traps, and they use civilians as human shields. President Biden talks about that, Netanyahu talks about that. So how can Israel succeed? It's going to be bloody, but I don't think Israel has a choice. And I do believe they'll succeed, but at a cost in terms of their own blood and treasure, because it's going to cost a lot of money uh, to pay for the artillery and all the rest of things that, that will go into this ground offensive, but mostly in terms of spilled blood, their own blood and the blood of innocent Palestinians who will be caught in the crossfire. But make no mistake, that's the responsibility of Hamas. Hamas is running the Gaza, and Hamas launched a terrorist attack on Israel, so Israel will respond. But the third way Israel will suffer is their um, reputation. There will be reputational damage, and that's really what Hamas is after here. I think they want Israel to uh, to mount this ground offensive because they know it will be bloody. And as I wrote in a recent column for Fox News, Hamas wants to be the midwife for the next generation of enmity between Arabs and Jews, Palestinians and Jews, and to make any sort of diplomatic reconciliation between Saudi Arabia and Israel impossible. Are they just hoping, that, as you talked about, that the reputation of Israel suffers so much that everyone is so angry about the invasion and the deaths of civilians in Gaza that at some point everybody turns against Israel? Is that the hope? They simply don't want peace and they want to conduct terrorist attacks. I don't think they have, a, you know, the, the, the grand strategy here, but they're not beloved in the region. In fact, there's no love lost between Hamas, which is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood, and Egypt, or Hamas and the Sau and Saudi Arabia. It's just that those other states, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, among others, uh, they want to leave Israel to do the dirty work that they will be behind closed doors supporting because they don't want to face uh, the costs, which are quite serious in terms of um, their own reputation with their own people. And so they're happy to let Israel do the dirty work. As Israel wages war with Hamas in Gaza, it's also been hit with rocket fire from Hezbollah militants in Lebanon, backed by Iran. And while President Biden warned in Israel yesterday, Don't. 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 Iran's foreign minister said time is running out for Israel. Jordan's king fears the situation could plunge into an unspeakable disaster. Well, this is where the United States needs to deter Iran and deter Hezbollah from doing that. So we've got an aircraft carrier, the Gerald R. Ford aircraft carrier, is in the Middle East, and we're sending another one, the Dwight D. Eisenhower. We need to make it clear privately, and they've done so publicly as well, this administration, about to Iran and, and Hezbollah not to become involved. If they do become involved, it will be a wider war. And Israel will take 
I'm sure, uh, very serious measures. And Lebanon, just like the Palestinians, the, the innocent Lebanese will suffer because Israel will bomb Hezbollah into submission. Hezbollah will seek to do the same to Israel. And it's going to get uh, pretty nasty. Yeah, I know. People are probably worried the U.S. troops might have to get involved in this conflict. Like, if you talk about us deterring Iran, that might involve U.S. strikes in Lebanon, if it, if it comes to that, right? It, it could involve strikes. I don't think it's going to involve boots on the ground. There okay. will be U.S. troops have been sent, uh, a small number have been sent, special forces reportedly, to Israel to assist with supporting Israel in terms of just the analysis and, as the military likes to say, cross-leveling, just sharing information, intelligence on what we're seeing. And there are U.S. forces now in the Gulf with those aircraft carriers. But I don't see a scenario where there will be U.S. boots on the ground in the Middle East. The Biden administration, just like most Americans is against a repeat of that. All right, let's say that the ground invasion and the war against Hamas works and somehow they are able to pretty much destroy that militant group. Then what? For the Palestinian people, for the whatever the Palestinian Authority is, then what? Yeah, so first of all, I think, let's be realistic, I don't think they're going to fully destroy Hamas. Hamas is not just a bunch of terrorists, but it's also an idea, just like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. So you will significantly degrade them and you will destroy key elements of their ability to wage terrorist attacks, but you won't completely finish them. That's probably not going to be possible. But we know that going into an open-ended conflict without a post-conflict reconstruction plan is a bad idea. We learned that in Iraq, even though many in the State Department were demanding that we do that. Um, unfortunately, we didn't have that strategy. And so there's got to be a plan for how you get in and what you do once you're there, and then how you get out. Israel, I'm quite sure, does not want to occupy the Gaza Strip. The question is whether they turn it over to the Palestinian Authority, which is very weak and ineffective and lost the last and only election in Gaza back in 2006. What about the hostages? Obviously, President Biden said that's one of his, that his top priorities is to, is to try to get the, the hostages out. Obviously, Hamas, it's a chip in the game for them. How do we get hostages out? I'm going to be brutally honest with you here because this is the way it was for me when I was testifying on Capitol Hill and I had to tell our elected leaders or, or briefing the White House, I'd tell people what they needed to know when it wasn't always what they wanted to hear. I would be gravely concerned about all the hostages. Uh, you may have seen that there's a video clip of an Israeli father who, upon learning that his eight-year-old daughter had been killed uh, in in Gaza, was he was sad beyond words, but celebrating that she wasn't going to have to go through being a hostage. Yeah, I saw that. Oh. Think, think about that. No, and I can't. think about the, well, I think we good enough, important for all of us not to turn our heads away from this um, and to be honest about what's going on. And it'd be good for the folks in Congress to do the same thing, because um, not all of them are, in my opinion. But it's, it, it, you know, the hostages, the idea that you could actually secure their freedom right now I find that extremely hard to imagine, and it's it's tragic, but I just I find it awfully hard to imagine how we could secure their freedom in the current circumstances with a war raging. Not not like this. We all saw it is what ISIS did. Another element of the tragedy, Dan. We yeah. all saw what ISIS did. You know, the, there was the videos even dating back to Iraq twenty years ago. Are we going to see that again? Well, we have. We've seen. You know, Hamas didn't just brutally brutally murder innocent Israeli civilians in southern Israel. They also inundated social media with with the evidence of their crimes against humanity. And that's what they do. 
You know, they they burned people alive. They tied people up and made them watch while they killed uh, family members and then shot them in the head. Some people claim those, that that's, that's the all fake. Were, they, those, there are, there are people are the claiming that's fake. Holding, Isn't that crazy, Dan? People are claiming that's AI generated and fake. Yeah, well, that's the world we live in, tragically. But that's why the Biden administration needs to own the narrative and, and work with our allies to own the narrative. And But that's where our hostages are. They're with those guys. So if you think there's a chance to get them out, then good on you for being an optimist. Um, I just, after all the decades I spent at CIA, I am deeply sorry to say I just can't be optimistic. And I'm just being honest with you. You ask the question, I'm telling you what I think. Dan Hoffman, retired CIA senior, clandestine services officer, Fox News contributor. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. All right. This is Jason Rance with your Fox News commentary coming up. This week, a U.N. embargo on Iran's ability to buy or sell missiles and drones expired. It was put in place when the JCPOA, or the Iran nuclear deal, was implemented. Critics wonder why we let it lapse without pushing U.N. member countries to keep it in place, especially right now, after Hamas which is largely funded by Iran, attacked Israel from the Gaza Strip. Texas Republican Congressman Michael McCall is the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He told Fox Business anchor Maria Bartiromo what relaxed U.S. sanctions have already meant for Iran. $30 billion of unenforced sanctions on oil, right? I mean, that has helped them build their war machine, their nuclear weapons program. And guess what else it helped? It helped them give them $150 million to Hamas, and a bunch of weapons. To the critics, State Department Principal Deputy Spokesperson Vedant Patel said, we have a number of tools at our disposal, export controls, our own sanctions authorities, and we've already targeted networks and individuals that would have been covered under the initial embargo. On the day the embargo lapsed, Wednesday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said they announced additional designations on individuals and entities related to Iran's missiles and drones, including activities involving Russia, China, and Venezuela. Iran is the world's largest state sponsor of terrorism. Tennessee Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn told Fox's John Roberts, who is in Jerusalem, Iran wants to harm Israel and wants a nuclear weapon. So we know what they're going to do. They have told us what they're going to do. And if they're going to tell you what they're going to do, for goodness sakes, believe them. And let's agree to stop them. The argument is over exactly how. Exiled Iranian Prince Reza Pahlavi told Bartiromo this past weekend. Implement the sanctions that have been called for. Uh, uh, we have forgotten about maximum pressure. As for letting an embargo at the UN against Iran lapse, 46 countries signed a letter, including France, Germany, the UK, Norway, Japan and South Korea, that said even without the embargo in place, they commit to take all necessary measures to prevent the supply, sale or transfer of certain weapons to and from Iran. This covers their ballistic missiles. It covers things like the suicide drones that you see them sending to Russia. Morgan Ortegas is a former State Department spokeswoman and founder of Polaris National Security. And Russia is using it, has been using it for the past year on the battlefield. Uh, not even just on the battlefield. They've been using it in Ukrainian cities to kill civilians. Right. So um, the point of this UN embargo is to at least make it difficult to make it illegal uh, so to speak, for uh, for Iran to be able to send around and procure this technology. Um, but unfortunately, instead of making it more difficult on them to do it, 
we, without any effort, the United States allowed this to lapse at the UN, and it's now not under UN sanctions for Iran to send these suicide drones to Russia, to Hamas, to Hezbollah, to whomever they want. The State Department said when asked about this lapse, you know, we have our own sanctions authorities, we have our own export controls, we have our own agreements with different countries, and I get that, but should something have been done differently ahead of October 18th? Because on October 17th, as you just pointed out, you know, Russia's foreign minister said, well, supplies to and from Iran under the missile technology control a regime right. no longer require prior approval. It sounds like to your point that countries are sort of taking this as a green light, even even if the United States government is saying it's it's not. No, I, I mean, like I said, they have done, they did absolutely nothing to stop this arms embargo. And really, they haven't done anything to pressure the regime in Iran. If anything, uh, you know, just a month ago, we saw them giving $6 billion in the largest ransom payment that the United States has ever paid in order to get uh, Americans, dual citizens out of Iranian prisons. You know, we in the Trump administration in the last two years under Secretary Pompeo were able to get two Americans out of Iranian prisons. And we did it for zero dollars. So the problem with trying to reinforce this arms embargo, this advanced arms embargo, the UN or, or doing anything to counter Iran would require the administration to admit that their Iran policy for the past three years has failed. Not only has it failed, the person in charge of their Iran policy, Rob Malley, uh, was essentially let go from the job and is under FBI investigation for what Congressman Mike McCall, the head of the Foreign Relations Committee in the House, has attributed to being espionage and treason. I mean, he's used oh. the word treason. So they seem unwilling in the face of 30 dead Americans and 14, at least 14 American hostages. There seems to be no price that they are willing to let the American people pay before they will admit that their Iran policy has been an abject failure. And it's why the Middle East is on fire today. Morgan, just to follow up on that, the State Department says they are doing more sanctions, new new sanctions. Secretary of State Blinken said Wednesday there were new designations on people and entities um, related to Iran and activities in Russia, China, and Venezuela. I just wonder, even with the embargo in place, Iran still did its thing. And even with sanctions in place, Iran still does what it wants, it seems. Does anything work? Yeah, so a couple things on sanctions. Um, first of all, uh, sanctions should never be the only tool in your arsenal. You should have a strategy towards a country, and sanctions should be one of the many tools that you're using. Um, if you were trying to use sanctions as a silver bullet, it will not work. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, I think that's how the administration is using them. Secondly, the sanctions that are uh, on, on on Russia right now, for example, are very, very different from the maximum economic pressure campaign sanctions that we had on Iran during the Trump administration. Um, so just to explain that for a bit, yes, there are sanctions on Iran right now, but the sanctions um, are not comprehensive. In fact, there's mm -hmm. nothing on, on the books right now, what we would call secondary sanctions. So essentially, the uh, Biden administration has made the decision to uh, essentially allow Russian um, oil sales to continue. That's why the ruble is trading right. higher today than it was before uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And it's why the Russian economy has not suffered under sanctions. If you want to actually uh, hurt the Russian economy, you have to hurt uh, and impede their ability to legally sell oil um, on the on the 
the open market, which is what we did with the Islamic Republic of Iran. We took their oil essentially completely off of the open market because we were willing to do secondary sanctions oh. and we were willing to go to Japan and India and China and, and say, you're not buying their oil. Like, and if you do, there'll be a confrontation with the United States over it. So secondary, so Morgan, yeah. secondary, just for our listeners, means that there are ripple effects that other countries have to be in, involved yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, it, and it means that you are willing to put your money where your mouth is, where it's not just cursory sanctions that make you feel really good. Another example would be the Russian banking sector. There are paltry sanctions by the Biden administration. So they'll put a few sanctions, for example, on the Russian banking, but they won't sanction their banking sector in its entirety. So everybody finds the workaround. If you want to be serious about sanctions, you have to put in a campaign similar to what Pompeo and Trump did on the max economic pressure campaign against Iran that that actually impedes their economy. We know since um, Biden entered office, for example, uh, the Iranian economy has at least $80 billion in additional oil revenue because the sanctions that we imposed are still on the books, but they aren't being enforced. Oh. They're also not being enforced against countries like Venezuela. They're not being forced, properly enforced against North Korea. So whenever you make it a US policy to not enforce sanctions on the books for a few rogue states, that has implications in every theater around the world. The administration said at the start of all this that there's no clear evidence linking Iran to what happened in Israel. Now though, as you know, this week we have Iran's foreign minister saying that preemptive action against Israel is expected soon. I think he said within hours, but he said that on the 16th. And then the Iranian embassy in Syria wrote on Twitter, time is up, and they wrote it in Hebrew. And everybody sort of thought that was pretty ominous. There were some other things. Are we going to look back in hindsight at some point and realize the Iranian connection was perhaps deeper than initially thought here? No, I mean, me and many others have known how deep it is. It's it's actually U.S. public record uh, on this. So it is a fact that 93% of Hamas's revenue uh, comes from the Islamic Republic of Iran. It is a fact that during the Trump administration, Iran, because of our sanctions, was only able to give them about $100 million a year. And because Biden and his team have not enforced those sanctions, Iran can now give Hamas $350 million a year. Hamas exists because of Iranian supports. By the way, so does Hezbollah So in, in Lebanon, so do the Houthis in Yemen, so do the Shia militias in Iraq, so does Assad in Syria. Iranian influence is pernicious around the Middle East. And by the way, the states in which they are the most influential are essentially failed states now. So it's not, it's not the kind of umbrella that you would uh, like to be under. And so it, it, it is a fact that Hamas would not have been able to do these attacks without the funding, without the training, without the equipping from Iran. And Iran themselves do not deny it. They're in fact quite proud of right. this uh, you know, terror attack that Hamas was able to pull off. So I don't understand why the administration is bending over backwards to try to protect Iran from something that Iran is basically fully admitting themselves that they were a part of. Yeah. To that point, you know, Morgan sending two carrier strike groups to the Eastern Mediterranean, that's that's quite a quite a bit. Uh, 2000 U.S. troops are on standby to deploy for medical and advisory roles. F-15s, F-16s and A-10s are deployed. The administration says this is all meant to serve as deterrence. Do you think it will work? Do you think things will not devolve further? 
At the moment, no. This administration has lost deterrence, not only in the Middle East, but they lost deterrence in almost every theater. Look, for example, at what was happening overnight uh, while you saw the president flying to the Middle East. As he boarded the uh, steps of Air Force One, we learned that Jordan and Egypt essentially told him to piss off and not come to the meeting. Um, and while that massive disrespect is happening to the U.S. president of a country, by the way, that gives $3 billion in aid to Jordan every year, you see Xi Jinping and Putin uh, meeting in China at the Belt and Road Initiative. They are chummy. They are smiling. There is not a bad actor on this planet that is currently deterred by Biden and his team. Uh, they make Jimmy Carter look like a war hawk. Morgan Ortegas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Meet the American who invented video games, a German Jew who fled the Nazis. Rudolf Ralph Heinrich Baer was born March 8, 1922 in Germany to Leo and Lottie Baer. The young tinkerer was raised in Cologne. However, his childhood was stolen by the Nazi regime. Hitler rose to power when Ralph was just 11 years old. And as anti-Semitism made its way through Germany, the young boy was forced out of school and ousted by his best friend who joined the Hitler Youth. Five years later, Ralph and his family left behind their home and everything they knew for the United States and flew to New York City in September of 1938. Ralph used the move as an opportunity to reclaim his education, studying radio technology and later joining the U.S. Army. During World War II, the future innovator became one of the legendary Ritchie Boys, a group comprised of thousands of German-speaking Jews responsible for 60 percent of all intelligence gathered by the U.S. during the war. In 1949, after restarting his education for a third time, Bear received a degree from the American Television Institute of Technology in Chicago. The 50s changed the landscape for television, popularizing the medium. And Bear proposed that TV companies should build games to their sets to differentiate them from competitors. However, the idea was quickly rejected, yet the brown box was born nearly two decades later. The interactive console was named after the clunky design, which featured two controls and games like ping pong and checkers. The device was released in 1972 as the Magnavox Odyssey, the world's first home video game system. That same year, Atari released Pong, the first arcade game, and the home version hit the market three years later. Magnavox sued, claiming Atari violated Bear's original patents. Known as the father of video games in 2006, Bear was honored by President George W. Bush at the National Medal of Technology and Innovation for his work. He died December 6, 2014, at his home in Manchester, New Hampshire, after producing more than 150 patents over the course of his life. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Jason Rance. What's on your mind? It seems incomprehensible that in the face of terrorists burning the elderly alive, raping women next to the bodies of their murdered friends, and decapitating innocent babies, an alarming number of so-called progressive Democrats are siding with terrorists. The anti-Semitism and flat-out hatred of Jews in this country should terrify those who understand where this is inevitably headed. After the terrorist group Hamas attacked innocent Israelis by land, air, and sea, progressive Democrats and Palestinians who came to the U.S. for a better and freer life took to the streets in celebration. 
While most outlets portrayed them as quote-unquote pro-Palestinian rallies, it's more accurate to call them pro-Hamas rallies. I should know. I attended one near Seattle. Radicals chanted, long live the Intifada. We don't want a two-state. We want 1948. And from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. It's easy to understand their meaning. They don't believe Israel should exist. According to a new YouGov poll, only 32% of adults 18 to 29 believe that Hamas is deliberately targeting Israeli civilians. How could this be? Do the rest believe the soulless terrorists mistakenly came upon a kibbutz and, out of boredom, started slaughtering innocent Jews? Do they accidentally kidnap a Holocaust survivor? Or murder parents in front of their children? Or children in front of their parents? Perhaps they're learning this from radical academics, indoctrinating them to view Israel as the oppressor and Hamas as the oppressed. 30 Harvard student organizations signed onto a statement claiming Israel was, quote, entirely responsible for all the unfolding violence. The statement shocked the conscience. At the University of Washington, a student club called Students United for Palestinian Equality and Return celebrated Hamas terrorism, referring to them as, quote, Palestinian resistance fighters and martyrs. Though this is a school where students claim speech they disagree with is, quote unquote, violence, the school's president, Anna Marie Kelsey, offered no criticism. In fact, she may agree with the sentiment. In a statement released only after we learned that UW alum Chaim Kotzman was one of the Americans murdered in Israel, Kelsey couldn't gin up enough courage to call Hamas terrorists. Instead, she called them Hamas gunmen before decrying the loss of life in Gaza and recognizing Palestine as an official state. It would be a mistake to dismiss these pro-Hamas activists as just a few bad apples within a larger political movement. They represent a growing share of the progressive base, which explains why so few Democrat politicians are willing to call them out. As an American Jew, the trend from the left that views Israel as a terrorist state is almost too hard to fathom. But the Democrat Party is fomenting these hate mongers, doing next to nothing to criticize their own members who openly seek Israel's destruction. American Jews better face the reality that we're increasingly seen as enemies. It should be a wake-up call to Jewish Democrats in particular. Is this the party you feel comfortable in? Those who celebrated the Hamas attacks by rallying nationwide are our neighbors. Retail clerks, teachers, lawyers, doctors, and bosses. And they weren't Republicans. How do we process this? The idea that my literal neighbor might be cheering on quote-unquote resistance fighters who tried to commit genocide is a bit too much for me to handle right now. More importantly, how do we not see them as a direct threat? God willing, Israel is about to eradicate every Hamas terrorist from the face of this earth. I imagine that will only engender more hate from our enemies in this country. And history proves that when our neighbors turn on Jews, not seeing us as human to the point where they celebrate our slaughter, it doesn't work out for us in the end. After the Holocaust, we warn people to never forget. But over the last few days, it's impossible to forget the fact that so many Americans seem to think Jews brought this slaughter on themselves. I'm Jason Rance, author of What's Killing America? Inside the Radical Left's Tragic Destruction of Our Cities. Available now. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Hey, it's Will Kane, co-host of Fox & Friends Weekend. Join me as I share my thoughts on a wide range of topics, from sports and pop culture to politics and business. The Will Kane Podcast. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.